Well, you sent me packing down Green River Valley. I knew that if you could... Hey, this is Adam with Mile High Stash, the podcast that asks what five albums you would take to a remote Colorado cabin in the event of a zombie apocalypse. Um, our guest today is Otis Taylor. He is playing at Dazzle in Denver on December 28th. Um, he has been sort of slowing down the performing, um, you know, but he is a legend not only in Colorado, but in a lot of places in the world um, of what's called the trance blues. And, um, you know, there's a little Hendrix, there's a little banjo, there's a little um, old school country, there's a Native American influence to Otis's music. And um, he has such an interesting story being from Chicago, you know, but spending most of his life in um, Denver and then Boulder and um, also spending a lot of time in Europe as a young man. And um, contrary to what it says on the internet, uh, Otis was not in the film Crossroads with Ralph Macchio, but he has done a lot of incredible things in his life, you know, from jamming with Muddy Waters as um, a teenager to playing in Zephyr to, um, you know, hosting the longstanding trance blues festival um in boulder to you know being in the new york times crossword puzzle and uh and the story of of otis being kicked out of high school in denver for his hair and then finally at 74 years old just recently getting his high school diploma is pretty amazing um otis didn't put out his first album until he was in his 50s but, you know, found a lot of success pretty quickly after that and has done amazing things. And I didn't really get a chance to dig super deep into Otis Taylor's catalog until he showed up for the interview and gave me a bunch of CDs to listen to in my car. <laughs> and um, it's just so deep and so powerful, you know, songs about... Um, the black experience and resurrection blues is is a whole nother beast, you know. But uh, the funny thing about our interview too was his reaction to the question of his five apocalypse albums, and um, I, I think you'll get a kick out of that. Anyway, um, thank you for listening, and um, anytime you can leave a review of. Mile High Stash on Apple Podcasts is fantastic. Or if you could throw a few bucks our way at milehighstash.com via the donate button or just on Venmo at Adam Ice 9 it really goes a long way. Uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the other side of my interview with Boulder's own Otis Taylor. Otis Taylor, thank you for coming by. Um, I met you one time. It was the auction for Caribou Ranch. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, I was there. In Denver. And I didn't know up until that day that you had worked in antiques. Yeah. For a long time. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Most of my life. 
you got into music and then you stopped playing music and kind of had a regular job for a while? No, no. I, I just was doing decorative arts. Then I had a bicycle team from 83 to maybe 82 to 86. Yeah. Well, you probably know all about Major Taylor then, right? Yeah, that's why I got into it because I found out about him. Yeah. So I had a lot of black writers. I had two yeah. African American writers uh, on the A and B team, New York's team. You know, there's a mural National of him. Team. What? There's a mural of him in Denver. Oh, is there? Probably, yeah. yeah maybe there's a lot of stuff about him. Everybody's onto it now. I hope so. There's been so. movies about him and books and stuff. Yeah, I didn't know about him until five or six years ago, and then I read a book about him and. Okay. I used to talk to his daughter, Sydney, on the phone. Oh, really? Yeah. In the he, 80s, she was alive. It's sad that I think he died living alone in like a YMCA in Chicago. He was penniless, yeah. Oh, my God. He, he made some bad investments, some kind of tires that didn't work, and he lost a lot of money. Man. What kind of antiques did you sell? Just anything and everything? You know, dec decorative arts, like uh, American Indian art, art deco, art nouveau. Yeah. Just decorative, you know, paintings. You were born in Chicago, right? Yes. What are your first memories of music? Oh, uh, the hand bones. Hand bones, hand bones, have you heard? I learned that song when I was oh, a little yeah. kid. And I couldn't do the thing like that. Yeah. My father had me do it in the barber chair. Show everybody, Otis, how you could do that. Yeah. I couldn't do it like the big kids could because they turned to the side and do it. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I was really bummed out. Was your family interested in music? Was it a musical family? They didn't play, but they listened to music. My father's a big jazz freak. Yeah. Listened to a lot of jazz. Why did your family come to Denver? Because uh, my grandmother had houses here. Yeah. <laughs> you had a place to live. And my fine. uncle was shot to death, and that just a lot of, it's just, she didn't want to speak. She wanted us to come out to Denver because they had relatives and it was a little safer, you know? Mm -hmm. What year was this? 52. What was Denver like back then? That's a strange question, man. What was Denver like that? I don't know. Yeah. Fuck. I'm too old to remember. Yeah. It was quiet. You could see the you could see the mountains, you know. Um I don't know. It was smaller, you know. Mm. We used to live in a ghetto and my mother used to say, One day this'll be downtown and she was about one block off. Yeah. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know. She used to tell me that. I go, Mom, you're crazy. No, you wait someday. What neighborhood was that back then? Over by St. Luke's Hospital, by 23rd Street. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't exist now, that part. They tore it down. Mm -hmm. By St. Luke's Hospital on there, you know. And when did you start to gig? My first gig, I think, I, I was 16. I played at Bar Mitzvah. Yeah? My banjo, yeah. I got $100. I was rich. You started playing the banjo really early, huh? Yeah, when I was 15, yeah. Wow. Why did you gravitate towards that? I don't know. How did you get one? I, I went to, I lived about four blocks from the Denver Folklore Center. Mm -hmm. So I kind of discovered it and hung out there every day after school. It's like my hangout. Yeah. So like people could hang out in music stores back in those days. It was a whole different world. Yeah. You know, they'd have records and guitars and beads and, you know, um, you'd have to talk to Harry about that. It was just a whole different world. People come from out of town and you'd put them up and stuff. It was just different, mm -hmm. you know. Um, well, it's all online now. It was just different. I mean, after, and then it changed a little bit after the whole drug thing got going too heavy, but it was just different. People would just hang out there, mm. you know, it was, because we're like outsiders, you know what I mean? So mm. I think there was a, 
kind of like the the folklore center. That's what it was. It was a center, you know. Yeah. And uh, the college, the high school kids would come down on the weekend, you know, hang out, music lessons. I remember, um, you know, Bill Fursell. Do you know who yeah. he is? Yeah. yeah. I was uh, going to see Bill Fursell and Ron Miles play in New York. Uh, and uh, and the first time I met Bill Purcell, I said, oh, yeah, I'm from Denver. He goes, you know Denver Folklore Center? And I go, yeah. And, and he goes, and then somehow it came up to Bob, Barb Mar- Bob Marcus, who was, I was in a band together when we were kids, was his guitar teacher. Oh, wow. So he was just so excited about Bob, you know, and just, and it was like 20 people waiting in line to get autographs. Mm. And he kept on talking. I said, Bill, Bill, these people are waiting in line, <laughs> you know. You he just, just, you know, he was a Folklore Center baby. Yeah. When did you start to write songs? I think when I was a kid. When I was little, I'd make up songs. Mm-hmm. That's about junior high school, maybe even before, maybe grade school. I don't know. Sometimes I'm so old, I can't think if I made up the songs from other songs. Right. Or if they're, I don't know. Kind of like my memory gets, you know. That's what all artists do, though. I mean, that's what Bob Dylan's first album is. It's just other people's songs. Well, no, 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 not that. I just can't remember if it was really original or if right, I just something right. I heard and I, I, I twisted or something. I can't remember now because, yeah, you know, I always wonder if it was, you know. Um, I don't know. I was very young. I'm 75, you know. You're 75. Yeah. You so, don't look 70. So I'm talking about trying to remember. Well, do the math. I yeah. came to Denver in 52. Right. Yeah. You're not a Sherlock Holmes type N- guy. You no, know, you need a, no. You need I'm to a write writer. Sure, you need to write. Some, no, Sherlock Holmes was probably a writer too. You need to kind of... You know, watch some Sherlock Holmes movies or something. You know, tighten it up for Agnes Christie. <laughs> <laughs> to tighten it up. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I studied English so that I wouldn't have to study math. And, and now, you, you know, just doing like a 10% tip or 20% tip is pretty hard. <laughs> I don't, don't, don't even bring me up about tipping. It's very strange now. I don't, I don't know. And I was just in France. And when you tip someone, they're like, Wow. Why? Why? <laughs> no, they don't know why. They know, they know why. You're American. Right, you don't yeah. know better. <laughs> I, I've, I've mostly worked in France for the last 20 years. They, yeah. they totally know. And then they try to, like if you go to Germany or something, they're trying to throw you off like, oh, no, no, you leave it. You know, they, they play a lot of games uh-huh. with you to get that money. And, yeah. You know, but in France, it's 15% everywhere. Yeah. Then sometimes you like them, you leave like a euro. Mm-hmm. That's the correct thing to do. Right. You know? Yeah. But you go to other countries, it gets very complicated because they kind of work the Americans because we're just, that's our instincts, you know. Yeah. I was at a really, really, really nice restaurant and it was only like 60 euros for two people, you know, for, for like three or four courses. And I gave the waitress a, a 10 euro tip and she, it, was, it was like she'd won the lottery. She walked. She like walked out onto the street and was just like, "Oh my God, thank you so much." That's oh yeah, that was pretty incredible. good. That's pretty good too. But you know, some restaurants depends. Were you in Paris when you did that? No, it was no, a small see. town. Yeah. Yeah. See, yeah, yeah. if you're in Paris, they just <laughs> no, they don't care. What music did you hear that maybe influenced what would become known as the trance blues? You know, and um, off the top of my head. And you can correct me if, if I'm completely wrong, but the two songs that um, come to mind are Are You Experienced and Tomorrow Never Knows. What's Tomorrow Knows? I don't know. The Beatles, Tomorrow Never Knows. 
No. Just a way off base. Completely. Hendrix. No, I like I love Hendrix, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a I have a bass player and we always get in this argument like who's cooler, the Hendrix or the Beatles? Yeah. I always say Hendrix is cooler. And I tell people who's cooler? The Rolling Stones or um Miles Davis. I always go on the Miles Davis side. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? The you Prince know? of Darkness. Oh, just the whole attitude, just the whole and turning his back on the audience and Not not that, know. just the that he's just hipper, you know. He's hipper than the Rolling yeah. Stones. That's yeah. just the way it is, man. To to me, as a black man, you yeah, know, you know. He also evolved and that was something that I, I think influenced people like David Bowie was Miles Davis from album to album, you know, it, it seems like you wonder who he's gonna be next. And the Rolling Stones kinda after the first five years or so, you know what the Rolling Stones sound like. Well, The way I look at this, it's 200 years now. Will people study the Rolling Stones or will they study Miles Davis? Hopefully they won't study the Rolling Stones, but they might. No, but you get where I'm coming from. You see what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. I mean. Because they might think, oh, rock and roll. Oh, Little Richard. They might even think about the Rolling Stones. They might go, right. you see, it could, could just change completely. But I don't yeah. think Miles Davis' legacy or Coltrane, those, those will change. Yeah. Well, also, if you have a 300-page book about the Rolling Stones, a lot of it is going to be about the fame and the drugs and and the marriages and stuff. Whereas, you know, a 300-page book about Miles would, would be, be about the drugs. And the, <laughs> I think so. It would be about and the, the marriages and the marriages. Sidney Tyson, you know, <laughs> the pimping and the you know, but the evolution from just understand something black people did drugs first yes yeah. <laughs> i'm just kidding i just made that up i should have a t-shirt black people did drugs first native americans might have done no. drugs no no the point is about yeah. um i don't do drugs i don't drink i don't yeah. smoke my parents uh were beboppers mm. they drank they did drugs you yeah. know smoke pot my mother went to jail for selling heroin i wrote a song about it you yeah. know so i came from a really subterranean lifestyle yeah but sometimes for black musicians, um, I don't think they did drugs to make their music better. Mm. They did drugs to take away the pain. Right. And, that, and white people think you do drugs because it'll make you play better. Right. But I really feel that people, the black people did drugs in those days to take away the pain of being so fucking, excuse my language, I can't say, being so Figured. suppressed, you know? Yeah. I mean, Miles... And Literally. then the white people copy that, oh, you got to do drugs, get high, and you'll play better. But it's not. That's yeah. not it. Miles literally, in the middle of one of his shows in New York, I think it was in the 50s, he, there was a set break, and he went outside, and they arrested him mm-hmm. and beat him up, you know, for being on the street. I, I, don't, I don't think the rock and roll bands can identify They could have got a hassle, but I'm just saying the psychologicalness of yeah. the white musician, the black musician, is, is a whole different thing it's know? a different reason to get inebriated is what you're saying just a different psyche yeah yeah you so what that's my opinion yeah well that's just your make it true too. yeah just my opinion yeah um what's it like having that psyche that you're talking about and living in boulder I mean, this is... That's why I lived in Boulder. Yeah. Because I could raise a family here, and being black, I wouldn't get hassled as much, you know? Really? Yeah, that's why I came here, and it worked fairly well. So some people would say that it's 
sort of vapid of white people in Boulder to say there's no racism here, you know, because there's almost no black no, people there's, here. No, there's always racism. Yeah. Because people come from all over, number one. Mm. But, the, but racism could leave, but there'll always be classism. Because oh, that's yeah. just a human instinct. Yeah. Somebody wants to be higher up on the mountain so they can piss down on you. Yeah. It, it's something about classism. In India, they don't have any racial problems because they're all the same, but they, mm-hmm. they, they connect it as a class thing, as a religious thing. They're really good at it. Yeah. They, yeah. They're like the best. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, at least it's out in the open there. I feel like class is the, is the number one thing that we don't talk about in America that is like a part of our experience. Well, the upper day. class talks about it. <laughs> <laughs> they love talking about it, right. you know. That's what makes them the upper class. Yeah. I have an expression there's classical music mm. for the upper class and there's folk music yeah. for the people. But there's also now a kind of white upper class folk music and Well, no, it's still folk music. See? It's still folk music. So you're catching yourself it's still folk yeah. music. Yeah, yeah. It just doesn't have the right. It ain't Yo-Yo Mon, you know what I mean? You yeah, know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. It, 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 you know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's always been wealthy kids playing folk music mm-hmm. from the starting from the '60s and '30s, and yeah. you know that whole Pete Seeger. It was always like the intelligentsia want to play folk music sometimes too. Mm-hmm. The college kids, you know, you know what I mean? Back in the '60s. Yeah. They were the ones who were booing Bob Dylan at. Yeah, but you, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, and then, yeah. and then, the, then there was the folk music people in the Appalachia. Mm-hmm. That was a whole other thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's always been sort of taken over since the 50s or 60s by the, the white upper class, a certain amount of folk music, you know. Yeah, that's happening right now. I watched it happen. I was there, you know. Yeah, when you're 75. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's happening right now with country music, too. I mean, but... Um, but it's still country music. I think I you're missing what I'm saying to you. There's yeah. classical music, there's folk music. Country music is folk music. Yeah. The blues is folk music. Jazz, that's that's the black music. That belongs. The blues isn't the black music? Well, jazz is blues, but, you know, yeah. jazz yeah. is, is if, if you, jazz and blues is what the African-American gave to the world. Yeah, yeah. And then... The other thing is a Western cowboy, but that really came from the caballeros from cowboying came from Mexico, and they mm-hmm. taught the Texans how to be cowboys, you know, and the slaves yeah. how to be cowboys. Did you watch the Ken Burns country documentary? I watched half of them. I got real depressed. Yeah. Well, the main thing that I took from it is all these people, Jimmy Rogers, mm-hmm. Hank Williams, all these people, Had a black friend. They all, every single one of them had... The black guy down at the tracks who taught them yeah. their stuff every and single time. And they were while. playing music that, for the white man that hated the black man. So after a while, it just depressed me. Yeah. It's just yeah. like, why do these people, if they all was getting it from the black people, why did they hate us so much, you know? There was Charlie <laughs> Pride, though. That's that's. Well, that was been, a phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. He's one of my heroes. I don't even, I'm not really a country western person, but historically, I think Charlie Pride was a very important person. There should be a movie about him. Maybe someday, maybe they will yeah. be. I don't know. You know, his son lives in Fort Collins and is like a regular I heard, guy. I heard, I heard something yeah. like that once in Colorado or something. Yeah. So let's go back. When did you make your first recording? First recording. Recording? 
95, Blue-Eyed Monster. Why did you wait so long? I wasn't, I, I don't know. Nobody wanted to record me. I, actually, I was going to make a record in 69 with Blue Horizon Records mm-hmm. in London, but it didn't work out, so I never, I went to the studio and they had me go, it was like weird, they had me go to a, I remember going to Wimbledon to see a, a ranger, and I couldn't even write music. I don't, these people, they just didn't, these weirdness weren't connecting, and then I ran out of money. I said, I need money. I go, well, we don't give you money, we just make a record, so I went home. <laughs> And I'm sorry I don't have the contract my father signed because I was underage. And, yeah. Um, and then they said they'd never sign me, but they they did, you know. Yeah. You know, and I'm, you know, it was it was a weird experience. But I just wasn't. Maybe I wasn't that good, or I don't know. Maybe I wasn't that good, or. But I was always hip, you know. Yeah. <laughs> How do you and, end up in Europe? I wanted to go there one time. I went there in 69. I panhandled, mm-hmm. did extra jobs, got money to go there, and spent all my money on clothes and had to live on the circle line and sleep on people's floors. It was the 60s, you know? You could still do that stuff. Did you see any of these big bands like Hendrix and the bands that were in? I didn't, I didn't see Hendrix until he came to Denver. I saw, I was at Hyde Park when the Stones played there. Yeah. I didn't care. I was just chasing girls I mean, yeah. at the time. I was like, I was just doing my miniskirt tour, you know. <laughs> I, I didn't really care the Rolling Stones were on stage. It's just yeah. the way I was, you know. I, I, and it was nice, but they're so far away. I mean, like, you know, yeah. thousands of people and all these hot chicks and that fuck, I don't, you know. Yeah. Just had a different attitude about it. Um, but I always had an attitude about that until I got married. When was that? When we got married? Yeah. 85. 85? Yeah. 86, 85, I think. 86. Well, I got married 38 years ago. You do the math. Yeah. <laughs> you have kids? Two, yeah. Yeah? I don't talk about them much. Not today. Oh, that's all right. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it's just... It's just... Uh, one time, Fred McDowell was going to... I was at the Berkeley Folk Festival. He was going to give me a lesson. Then I met this hot chick, and I didn't show up for my lesson. You know, it's just like really irrelevant you know I, I just i don't know i was kind of flippant when i was a kid mm-hmm. about things yeah and old black people were old black people you know when i was a little kid i got to sit in with muddy waters play in monica wow where was that at the voters club in denver yeah but it's, they're old black old black people were old black people they weren't subheroes to me yet Mm-hmm. Now they're like this bigger than, you know, ever. Icons. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, um, just your perspective's different when you're a kid. Yeah, yeah. Because I was a kid, I was 16, you know. That must have been incredible. I'm not going to see Sun House, I met him, but Fred McDowell was going to be lessons. I really screwed that up. I probably should have took the lessons. And, but... I'm asked, Junior Wells going to give me the lesson. I did the same thing. I'll meet you tomorrow. I said, you know, it's just, there was a female involved. That I didn't make it to the lessons. You know? Yeah. I just didn't. That's just the way it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it doesn't mean make... I didn't like their music. I loved their music. I just was flip, you know, I was flaky. A lot of young people are. Yeah, yeah. So. I was young once. Yeah. Um, so you make your first record finally in 95. Yeah. And yeah. then did that change your life? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure did. Almost changed my marriage. 
Yeah. My wife said there'd never be a second album. <laughs> but I but fifteen albums later. Yeah. How does she feel about it now? That's a good question. She kind of tells me it's her time now to do things, you know. Yeah. It's pretty consuming. She's proud of me. I've had a lot of accolades, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, end up in the African American Museum and the Nashville African American Museum of Music in, Nash in Nashville. Sundance Fellow. Movies. I don't know. You were or, in Crossroads, and I didn't I know that. I was not in Crossroads. You were not, why is this all over the internet? Because you can't get it off. Because oh, you can't Lord. get it. It drives wow. me crazy. You can't, wow. That's how they, and they, the internet it's says. It's everywhere, too. No, the internet says I play ukulele, and I don't play ukulele. <laughs> I just, my mother had one. I took to the folklore center to have it fixed. Yeah. So you can't, once this animal oh, wow. goes, you can't change it. Even now I say it'll never change. Wow. There's so many mentions of you online that say that you played but all the other ones are correct. Just that yeah, one's just wrong. Just not that one. Yeah. Wow. You know. Maybe just go with it. Be like, fuck yeah, I was in Crossroads. <laughs> no, I don't go with it. I just like, it frustrates me when people say that because yeah. I'm not a bullshitter, you know, and I, yeah. I can't, you can't stop it. It's like, here's one for you. I saw, yeah, here's a story for you. So the other day we were playing in Seattle. We got off the plane and I run into Taj Mahal. Oh, mm -hmm. hi, Taj. How you doing? And stuff. And, you know, and he goes, Otis, you're one of the people that really brought the banjo on the forefront. I go, Taj, if you Google me, black banjo players, my name doesn't come up. You know what Taj said? Right. You know what he said to me? Mine doesn't either. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Jesus. You know what I mean? Because yeah. just this, just the chocolate drops come up or so. It's just, it, things get into this yeah. loop and you can't, wow. you can't break the, the, that's why the computer's dangerous too, you know, this yeah. thing, because it, it, it gets fed certain ways and you don't, it doesn't make sense. Well, I'm glad I asked you about that so you clear that up. Yeah, it's true, man. It's not, no. But I've had music on a lot of other movies and yeah. TV stuff. Yeah. Okay. Is it true that you played with Zephyr? It, the, okay. It's complicated. All right. The last edition of Zephyr, I played with him, but I didn't record with him. Mm -hmm. But usually, I introduced Tommy Boland to David and Cammie Gibbons. Mm -hmm. So I was always in that scene, and I had a little thing at the at the Folklore Center concert hall. I'd pay Tommy and other musicians $5 and come jam with me. Yeah. So I had this whole thing kind of going, and that's how people, you know, mm -hmm. so they met each other. And I had a little band with Tommy. We played two concerts called the T&O Short Line. Mm -hmm. Harry thought he had a recording, but he lost it. He couldn't find it. But I have a photograph of Tommy and I, a PR photo yeah. on my website. So... You know, I was kind of like the John Mayle of the Denver blues scene. Yeah, yeah. When I was a kid. Yeah. But I wasn't famous, you know, but I just, you know. So once you put out this first album and you start to tour lots. No, we didn't start touring a lot. I didn't, the first album got bad reviews because they didn't get it. And, um, mm. Then the second album, When Negroes Walk the Earth, I mm. went to a folk alliance yeah, I made a big poster and stuff, and no, that wasn't. That was a third time I. No, Blue-eyed monster. Okay, I went to Folk Alliance three times. So the second time I went to Folk Alliance, I had a big poster that said, "When Negroes Walk the Earth," the album cover, and uh, and Dave Marsh saw that and he, and he thought to myself, "He's gonna walk." I didn't know who he was. He just picked yeah. up the. I was giving out CDs. Picked up the CD, and he thought. This guy's either really good or really bad with a title like that. Mm -hmm. 
And the, so I got, I didn't even have a record company because I made my own self records. Yeah. And then I got in Playboy magazine, hmm. a, review, a little review in Playboy magazine. And then it, then it started taking off because Dave Marsh wrote about me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then all the writers and, you know, and then maybe by when I got, got a white African came out the next one after that, then the touring started picking up when I got a handy. Yeah, and when the were Europeans you able to? On me. What? When were you able to start um, only doing music and, and not working at anything else? Well, like right, maybe right after, right after when I was starting to tour, and but I always really on deal on the side. I just didn't have a hundred percent. Right, know? right. It was a hard transition, you know, because you got to feed your family. Yeah. How did you develop your sound that's now known as a trance blues? I don't know because I think if if one is original, it comes out like that. Mm. It just comes out like that. And I didn't spend a lot of time when I was a kid. I was I didn't spend a lot of time listening to other people or learning their guitar licks. Yeah, and I was kind of handicapped. I couldn't bar on the guitar, mm. and I really technically, my right hand's okay, but I I, um, I couldn't do certain things. Mm. So I just got into rhythmical rhythmical things. Yeah. You know? It just kind of happened, you know. Mm. You're, I'm not a, technically not a very good guitar player. That's debatable. Well, I mean. no, 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 debatable is. <laughs> I'm a performer. I'm a magician. That's what I tell people. Yeah. I should get like uh, like a plaque on the Magic Castle, but they don't. They don't. They just don't know about me, and I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if they believe me if I wouldn't tell me. I don't know if they get it. I have a way of making people think I can play music. It's a magic trick. But I'm not doing anything. And my lyrics are very, my wife says, cryptic. Mm. But then they, they resonate to people. So you get this weird combination, you know. And it works. That's all. And Otis, as long as I play Otis, I can make money. Yeah. If I play anything else, it's not going to make me money. But if I play Otis, I make money. How many people really enjoy or are impressed with, you know, Ingve Malmsteen and, the, and Steve Vai and stuff like this compared to the number of people who enjoy Otis Taylor and guitar playing that just hits people? It's, it's, you're not necessarily... I'm not doing anything. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not doing yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not how many notes you play, it's what notes you play. Yeah. When I have my Trans Blues Festival, I tell that to my students. Yeah. It's it's not how many notes, it's how you play that note, how you make that note sound. It's just like sometimes you hear guitar players that play a lot of notes but mm. does nothing for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, one time I saw um, T-Model Ford at the House of Blues. I was with Barry Dolan's who used to put on the Chicago Blues Festival. He took me to the House of Blues. It was Johnny Winters and T-Model Ford. T. Bottle Ford just sitting there playing guitar, handing out whiskey. It was mm-hmm. unbelievable. Kicking Johnny Winter's ass. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Just like he just stole the show. Yeah. He just had a guitar and his whole attitude, like he'd ha- hand people bottles of whiskey from the stage. He was yeah. nuts. It was like unbelievable show, you know? It was it was just he wasn't playing a lot of notes. They don't play a lot of notes. Miles Davis would say it's the notes you don't play as well. Yeah. Well, a lot of notes don't play. It's a the, yeah. it's a holes too that make the syncopation. You yeah, know? yeah. Yeah, it's well, it's the notes you don't play because they're no good. You ever think about that? Or well, they're would, too much. Sometimes it's just too many, like you're saying. 
Yeah, but if if yeah, and sometimes too much, and sometimes they're no good too. Mm-hmm. Notes are like a living thing almost, you know. Mm-hmm. If the the timing of the note, the way the the the, the texture, like uh, Gary Moore, I played on three of my albums. You know mm-hmm. who Gary Moore is? Yeah, yeah. And he said the tone is in your hands. Mm-hmm. The vibrato, the tone. Every guitar player has a signature in their tone. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's a note, the tone. And uh, piano players too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, everybody does. But I mean, yeah. it's just, yeah. so a note has a lot of life to it. One note. Well, I was going to ask you about your tone and. Well, I have no tone. <laughs> <laughs> Specifically, there's this video of you. Especially playing. electric guitar. All my guitar play. Man, set up my amp. I tell them to set my <laughs> amp up because I can't. You don't have any pedals? Yeah, I have a, yeah, that's a trip. I have a pedal, but I don't have any tone. Yeah. No, and I do have a tone in my hands, but I don't. I don't electronically. I don't have any tone. Mm. Acoustically, this, I do. There's this video of you playing "Hey Joe," and it's got like 3.5 million views on on YouTube, and it's the feeling, the performance, the band is incredible, you know. But yeah. your tone, I feel like, is why people are. And that's drawn my. To it's that. my delay. Nobody does delay like I do. But that's not tone. That's delay. Yeah, yeah. It washes over. Everybody. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a beautiful... Uh, That's because nobody plays delay like I do. Yeah, yeah. How did you develop that? It was an accident. Yeah. I was just messing around. Because a long time ago, Eddie uh, Turner, the, the original like Otis Taylor group that we started, mm-hmm. he played like, you know, he had five, six pedals, and he had a delay pedal, and I go, I should get one of those, try that. So I was messing around one day, I brought one, and I did this thing, and I said, and I did a thing, and it made a rhythmical thing, I go, wow. I mean, I, I got to write that down. I had to like write it down and try to remember the settings. And I can only do it on one certain pedal. Mm-hmm. All the other pedals don't have those kind of settings. Yeah. And so that kind of became my signature kind of delay thing. Because I play an open tuning, so I already sound yeah. like two guitars. They want to hit it with the delay, then I sound like three guitars. Wow. And that's what makes all that, that intensity. <laughs> and Tommy played on a loop delay, you know what I mean? Tommy Bowen Tommy played Bowen. on yeah. yeah. I just play in a boss pedal, you know. For the gearheads that might listen to this, what pedal is that? It's a Boss DD5 or 3. You know, I can't remember. It's a 5, I think. They don't make it anymore, whatever yeah. it is. It's either a 3 or a 5. And that's not a fancy, expensive pedal. It was once just a stock. No, it used to be stock. I, yeah. I have to always buy used ones because I, I, I break, they break. I have to find them online. Yeah. Man. Um, I want to ask you this question. It, it's a crazy question, you know, but everybody who comes on the podcast, they answer this question. Um, if you were stranded in a cabin in Colorado, somewhere like Ward, you know, oh, yeah. in the middle of nowhere, and all you had was food, water, and a crank-powered <laughs> Victrola record player, what five albums would you want? You know? I don't know, because, you know, your tastes change every day. So yeah, you listen yeah. to something for a week, then you burned out on it, aren't you? What about today? Like if there was this apocalypse and you, and you had to escape and you had to bring five albums, what five albums would you bring today? I don't know. <laughs> because depends how much time I had. Do I have a week to think about the album? No, or? you got to go. You got to stop at Bart's record store, you know, and just, just, just grab five. I probably wouldn't grab any. None? Because I'd, be, I'd be too confused. I, I, I'd, be, I'd be fickle. Then when I get fickle, I'd get upset. Yeah. Think about it. Could you really grab five? Not really. Because you think about, should I go like maybe Gypsy Kings? I like the Gypsy Kings or 
what jazz album would I want to maybe do Dave Blubeck maybe, but maybe mm-hmm. I get sick of that after a, a day. See, the thing is, right. is, if you play music over and over, you'll burn out on it, like mm-hmm. certain songs. Yeah. I'm not trying to be evasive. I'm telling no, you the I... truth. A lot of, every, everybody else is going to maybe tell you a story, but I'm just telling the truth. Yeah. In the true reality, what you listen to today is not what you listen to a week from now. Unless you're stuck with your five albums and you've, you've still been there for. Well, I wouldn't want to be stuck with five albums. I might, I might want to rather be. I'd rather not have any and just hum and sing to myself yeah. and try to figure out. You know, I listened. In one car we have um, Curtis Mayfield, mm-hmm. and in that car I had um, Phil Roy. Yeah. In a couple of weeks, I'll change up and listen to something else. Yeah. Your guest number fifty on the show, and I have had. So many different answers. You know, some people just take it extremely simple and they say, well, these are my five favorite records. And then other people say, well, I need theme music for battling the zombies, you know, and then uh, <laughs> uh, Munley. I, you didn't say we we're going to fight. So you <laughs> it's up to you. You might cower in fear. No, you don't you get might... what I'm saying. You didn't say. <laughs> I want no music because I don't want them to find me and I don't want to make any noise. How about that one? There you, Think about yeah, that That's one? great. Yeah. That'd be more real, wouldn't it? Yeah. Munley from... Slim Stasso's Auto Club. Yeah. He sat here and, and said, I'm not going to answer this question because it will never happen. It's That's not, a good one, too. It's not That's, something that will ever happen. I'm more with him. I'm more, yeah. more on his side. Yeah. And you know what? If it does happen, I, w- I wouldn't care less about music. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. How do you like that one? Would you like to have a banjo with you, though? I don't know. Because, see... see if you had a banjo, and after a while the strings broke and wore out, mm-hmm. then you wouldn't have a banjo because you're in a fallout shelter or something, see? You'd have a hand drum, though, you know, if the strings broke. Are you, are you high right now or something? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, man. You can hit a, you can pound in your box of cereal or yeah. your cans. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, man. <laughs> come on. You got to give me a break here. You're going yeah. off on it. You got you to gotta pull yourself back in, brother. <laughs> I need some coffee. Yeah. Um, why do you? I think... hate to bust you, but I do that to people. I'm famous for that. It's great. Yeah. Right. Why do you think that your song "Resurrection Blues" has resonated so much? And do you think that people who are Christian like that song for different reasons than people who? Well, I, I don't. I, here's what's going on. One time I played "Resurrection Blues," I was uh, oh god, <sighs> little. Little Feet, and they were playing at the Telluride thing, and I was opening for them, mm-hmm. and I played that song, and people started laughing. Then hmm. I, like, freaked out about it. I didn't play it. And then one time I was in the Florida Folk Festival off the Swanee River, and um, it was really, really heavy. Two things happened. That day, this this guy who was a it was Filipino descent, and he was a, a, a Navy, um, like, priest or something, mm-hmm. and he goes, man, that song is so heavy. Yeah. Another guy said to me, because that album had just come out, another guy said to me, I have a friend who's dying of cancer. You know, he wants to meet you. And I almost couldn't play that song mm. when I was getting ready to do my set. This before I went on, and I just, like, freaked out. So I didn't play it for a long time because I thought it was too dark for people. Yeah. Live, you know. And um, then I got out of this Italian movie. What's called, like, What Happened on Christmas Eve? I don't, I don't know. It's an Italian Mm-hmm. And they and they, the 
the song was in a scene where the preacher guy who's in a wheelchair into the swimming pool. And they played Resurrection Blues. Yeah. And about a month after that, I just, that song blew up. Yeah. All of a sudden, one day it was like two million, and it just blew up. And I don't know why, what happened. Mm -hmm. It was weird. It is fucking heavy. I mean, that's like that. Oh, it's heavy, yeah. Well, I was, that was one of my, I was kind of doing a theme of um, songs. And then it's another song, um, you know, I was raised Lutheran, mm-hmm. which was a whole other story at a Swedish Lutheran church. But my my uh, grandfather was a Baptist minister. But I wasn't, you know, I became a Unitarian by the time I was fifteen. Mm-hmm. I'm not that religious that way, um, but I still have the, the the traces of that from childhood. Yeah. So I wrote another song called Three Days and Three Nights." It's on White African. And it's about a man whose baby's dying, right? And he's trying to stay up for three days and three nights. And he says to the child, if I fall asleep, Jesus will hold your hand. Mm. So I was just into this heavy sort of, that time, that album period, just a couple of the really deep religious sort of songs, even though I'm not religious. The Bible is heavy. Yeah, you know. You know but, so that was just part of that whole Resurrection Blues, Three Days, Three Nights on White African that I was kind of doing. Yeah. This dark album, it's a dark album, White African. How long have you been... Here in Boulder, about since '68. Since '68, yeah. I'm so fascinated about the Black experience in Boulder, and you know how um, you said uh, you could raise your kids here, yeah. you feel safe here. But Dion Sanders recently has been saying it's it's a great place, but where are the Black people? They're in Denver. In Denver, not very far away. <laughs> yeah. What's it like to live in a town where you might, you know? I went to a Black high school. I don't know if you heard, I was all over NPR and The Guardian, mm. and did you hear about that? No. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. look up Otis Taylor Manual yeah. High School. Yeah, I will. And um, I got kicked out of school for, you know, for long hair in the 60s. Mm. And so, um, but then about just before the pandemic, they put a picture of me in their Hall of Fame, mm. in the hallway of famous people, like with Mayor Webb and all this shit. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I tell my friend, and he goes, you got to come see this. I went to see it, I go, Evan, my friend who's photographer, Evan, I never graduated. So then, because of the pandemic, they had trouble. But after the pandemic, they had a big ceremony for me and gave me my high school diploma. It was all over Mexican news, I mean, Spanish news, African news, The Guardian, you know, um, Wall Street Journal. Not Wall Street, no, no. Wall Street, yeah, Wall Street. What's the Wall Street, um, what's the D.C. paper? The uh, Washington Post. Washington Post, yeah. yeah. It was every, everywhere if you Google it. Wow. But I got my high school diploma. Well, it sounds like some things about you online are true. So, so that's good. Yeah, that's true. It was true. That, that's good. But um, <laughs> no, you know, I had a black bicycle team that was sponsored by white people in Boulder in the yeah. 80s. I don't know. There's something about people that complain about Boulder being racist or some, some movie, but I don't agree with it. You know, I wouldn't necessarily say that the Boulder is racist. However, I think a lot of it's people. It's classes. It's classes, but also um, my experience sometimes is that people hold their shoulders high because they say, I'm not racist. I, I practice you know, diversity awareness, but then they don't actually have no, to don't. practice But that's it. just how it always been, you know? Yeah. It's like kind of like, I'm a liberal, but don't marry my daughter. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's the old joke from the 60s, you know? Yeah. And it's kind of like that. And it's always going to be because it's racism, classism. They're, all, they're very, very close together yeah 
But, you know, you're not going to usually on the average get, you know, be arrested walking down the streets in Boulder. Yeah, yeah. If you're black or long hair or whatever. Well, it was never a, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was never a sunset town like Longmont was. Oh, no, Longmont, I wouldn't have had a, at that time. Back in the 60s, I never would have lived in Longmont. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. In college in Pittsburgh, I lived for a, a year in a neighborhood where I was the, I was the only white person. And I would yeah. go to the bar, and I would be the only white person there. And I, I felt like that experience was really profound and, and necessary. So I, I, I do wonder what it's like to be the opposite and to be um, in Boulder and... Never thought about it. Really? Because yeah. it was hip. It was like the college town. It was like, yeah. you know, a lot of the Kenny Passarelli, Tommy Bolin, we all came to Boulder. Yeah. You no, know, Kenny's half Italian, half Spanish. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tommy was half Syrian, half Swedish. You know what I mean? You know, Freddie Hinchy came to Boulder. You know what I mean? It wasn't, it was a better place for that situation. And yeah. They, and people gravitated to Boulder yeah. because it was a college town. Right. Then being in Denver, with the you know where the cowboys might cut cut your hair during the stock show time, you know, yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. It, was, it was a different mentality. <laughs> so you, musicians came to Boulder from all over Colorado. Yeah, Hazel Miller told me something similar. She said she was happy and she felt like her kids were safe. And and yeah. also she very emphatically said, "I've gotten more shit in my life from being a woman than for being black." That's that's a possible possibility. Yeah. 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 I'm not a woman, so I can't. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. You had an album come out earlier th- this year, right? Yeah, called Banjo Eclipse. Yeah. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah. just means banjo, but more. Huh. It's kind of like jazzy. It's very esoteric yeah. title. Yeah. If you don't see the three dots. But I just got a text, and um, there's a writer named John Stanford, and um, that's what he writes under. Yeah. And he, he put my, uh, he said one of the detectives was listening to the banjo album. That was kind of cool. Uh-huh. He's done that for me before, too. Yeah. But, uh, and you mentioned, you know, you've had 15 albums, and um, you're not playing that many shows. Do you have anything between now and, and the Dazzle show? No, no, I, no. I'm not trying very hard. Yeah. I'm dealing with some medical things. I'm just yeah. trying to just see, you know, and I no more Europe. I called my European agent and said, I'm not going to tour Europe anymore. And he thought I was doing it to get more money. And I said, no, man, you won't see me there ever again. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. I told him it yeah. won't happen. So and that's where I do most of my touring. Yeah. And I never tour. Sometimes um, touring's an illusion. If you can go and tour Europe and play in front of 200, 300 people a night for 10 days, or you can go to a big festival and play in front of people, 6,000 people in, in one day. So it's all sort of how you want to deal mm-hmm. with it. Yeah. It's not, you know, how many club dates do you want to do? I never like doing the club dates in a van. I never like that style, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so what is it that you, are you trying to, have a lot of people see you? Are you trying to make fans? Yeah, it's just, mm-hmm. touring has a lot of different parts to it. Do you have a plan for the future? No. For, um, maybe scaling Did it down? Did you hear what I just said? <laughs> no plan? No plan. I'm Is trying, the plan I'm to I'm have trying to no work plan? out my future. I'm trying to see what kind of future I'm going to have physically, so I'm just waiting yeah. to see. Yeah. But you feel like you're slowly 
uh, going into a retirement of sorts. It's not retiring. My, uh, I just got to see what my body's going to do. Yeah, yeah. I won't know that for a little while. And then we'll see. No big deal. I'm 75. Yeah. You know? Um, that's <laughs> the way it is, man. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like most people, most people retire when they're 65. Right. Is My generation. If you're 75 and you think about maybe I'll start retiring a little more and cutting back, people go, well, how can you do that, Otis? You're Otis Taylor. You can't do that. You've got to keep on playing. You know? Right. It's funny, the psychology of it. Musicians are supposed to last until you stop playing until you can't play anymore. And I might still be like that, but I just have to see. Yeah. I have to see when I'll play my last song. You like that? That sounds poetic. I don't know when I'm going to play my last song, I yeah. guess. Yeah. That could be a song, too. Good writing. You know. Well, I just got it copyrighted. I just yeah. said it. Yeah. When did your love of Native American uh, culture and, and music and even fashion, when did that begin? When I was about 16. 16. I met somebody who turned me on to American Indian jewelry, and then I just sort of went into it, you know. Never came out. Yeah. It seems like it's had a big influence on you. Yeah, because, uh, okay, here's my theory about influences. Influence is anything that's outside of your culture. Mm-hmm. So I like Irish music, I like flamenco music, because they're outside of my culture. Mm-hmm. I like American Indian art because it's outside of my culture. Mm-hmm. It's an influence, you know? So this is like the opposite of xenophobia. It's like wanting to... No, it's like, I'm really influenced by barbecue. Well, man, that's just not, you know, yeah. I'm really influenced by solo music. How can, that's your music. That's yeah. your culture. You right, know? that is you. I'm really influenced by the English language. No, that's the language you speak. That mm-hmm. doesn't influence you. See what yeah. I mean? It's part yeah. of your culture. Yeah. You're influenced by things that are outside of your culture. Do you think you'll make another album? Well, I just finished banjo. Can you give me a little time? Yeah. I'm old, man. <laughs> you know what's the problem? I used to make an album every year. Yeah. Telek was getting mad at me because he goes, Otis, you make an album before the last one gets a chance to kind of settled down right right but i had things to say and i did that for a long time it drove them crazy what was it like recording at, at octave it was okay and no, no problems you know maybe technical problems sometimes but no problems really you know was, you get used to a studio it was my first time so it takes time to get used to studio mm-hmm. the, like uh, Immersive was in the same building, but I had done like eight albums in Immersive. So yeah. it's kind of like you have to, f- it's an emotional thing to fill a different room, you know, mm-hmm. different engineers. It takes time to kind of get a relationship with that engineer yeah. where you communicate really well. But we finally got it down. I mean, have you heard the Banjo album? A little bit of it, but I gravitated toward the um, White African oh. album and... No, no, Banjo, three, Ellipsis. Have you heard that one? Yeah, yeah. Then there's Recapturing the Banjo. Mm. That's a whole other different thing. You have a vast catalog. Yeah. I kept on thinking that I've only been playing music for 20 years when I came back, but it's been actually 30. I I really lost a sense of time there. Yeah. So I average an album every two years. Mm. But for a while, I was doing an album every year. Yeah. Are you going to do the Trans Blues uh, festival no, I'm again? Too, I'm too tired. Too, uh, it's yeah. too much for me. I stopped doing it. Yeah. I decided, and the pandemic told me that it's time to stop it. Mm. But I did 10. They were yeah. cool. Really yeah. cool people played at it, you know? Taz played at it twice. You know Taz? No. 
check him out sometime. He's All right. he's touring with uh, Baptiste right now. Mm. He was on the School of Rock on Broadway. He's mm. like a big hit. And all kinds of different people. Chuck Campbell. Um, Mato Nanji. Um, God, I can't even think of him. I'm getting so old. You know, Ron Miles. Mm. You know, a lot of... I just try to. I've tried to find musician musicians, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, my daughter, she was really good too, you know. Um, all kinds of people. I can't even think of them now, you know. Mm. Oh, Alvin Young, Bud Hard, Guy yeah. Davis, yeah. Um, Don Vappy, I think came to one. Yeah. Margolis came to one. So the show, you know, that's going to happen. In December, um, at Dazzle, who's going to be in your band? I don't know. With uh, wait, I'm still a few people. Maybe the I have a commitments, but that doesn't mean they're going to show up. Yeah, I mean, um, Brian Mon will be there, and Beth Brosbach will be there. So far, I have to see about Nick. Um, has some things going with the family, so I have to see if he's going to be in Colorado at that yeah. time period. Um, we'll see. I make phone calls. And with the, I never worry about it. Well, as long as you're there, you know, it'll be. It'll be yeah, that's what I used to tell all the band members, you know. <laughs> yeah. Don't get an attitude because Otis don't show up. You don't have a job yeah. today, yeah. you know. Yeah. So it's people, it's, it's not the band, it's the songs mm-hmm. that people like. You know, if you have good songs, you can play with any band. Yeah. You can have a great band with mediocre songs and you only go so far, you know. Like Bonnie Rayfield's really good about picking songs, mm-hmm. you know. It's like Susan Tedeschi was really good, good player, everything, but they never got that perfect song. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And, and it's about the songs. And everybody forgets that. It's really about the songs. Yeah. Well, some of her band with Derek, um, I, they have some great songs. Like, yeah, but they're not the big hits. They're not that. Thing. No, they're definitely not hits. No, no. but mm-hmm. Bonnie Wraith, man, comes in a hit, and it's like, they, it's so good people think that she... People think that she wrote it. She does so well yeah. with it. You know what I mean? But she didn't write those songs. Yeah, but you definitely associate "Are You Ready for a Thing Called Love" with with her. It's like that's that's no, but Bonnie Raitt. What it yeah. takes. So it's about the songs. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I know that that because that's how I make my living. It's about the songs. Yeah. And I don't even write commercial songs, and I can still get a couple of songs through. Yeah. You know, and I'm a very obscure musician. People kind of know me, but they don't know me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's like, if I play, I might get 200 people to come see me. Or somebody could play and get 1,000 people, but they won't know their songs. Yeah, It's just weird how it works. Yeah. You know? So with this vast catalog, and you know, you know you have this one show coming up, how do you choose what to play out of all of those songs? Well, if I don't play Hey Joe, then it just there's Intimidating Slaves, and I get a lot of shit. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And certain ones I get shit, but if I don't play Hey Joe, people will just get upset. It's like a curse, you know? Save it for the encore. Make them make them wait. No, that's not my encore. Then I have my encore songs. Yeah. That's even stronger. But yeah. I have to play Hey Joe and, and Ten Million Slaves. Yeah. You know, if I don't play those, it's trouble. And that's a problem. After 15 albums, what songs do you play? Yeah. And then I have, you have songs that are so strong... It, when you're a performer, you want to put out your best songs as a performer. Mm-hmm. 
So sometimes you have your go-to songs. If I play Hands on Your Stomach, people are like, it raises the, the whole concert. Mm. So you learn as a performer what songs are going to hit people. Yeah. You know, you want your highs, you want your sort of lows. You don't want everything to be high, 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 because it doesn't work that way. Right. So you want the high, then bring it down, you know, and so boom, and hit it again, you know, and then make sure you hit it at the end. Yeah. As a performer. It's a, it's a technique. Well, I've never seen you play live, so well, I'll definitely be there. People say they like me live because it's a whole other thing yeah. on my albums. Yeah. They always say, oh, you got to do a live album. I go, yeah, when I'm dead, they can take one of my recorded concerts and make right. a live album, but I'm a songwriter. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm excited for you to write more songs and play more shows. I'm not writing as, as much. I had a really down slope. But then somebody told me that Billy Joe didn't write a song for six years, so that made me feel better. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a lot of words yeah. and thoughts and concepts, but I haven't been up on my music as much, the musical part. Yeah. But lately, all these thoughts have been coming to me. You know? Do you ever write with people or just no. on your own? Only, only uh, <laughs> I had a, my little... My daughter, when she was four, four, about four years old, maybe five, maybe four, I, was, I went to Santa Fe to do business, and Cassie started singing the song under the piano. My daddy's gone to Santa Fe, and I'm here waiting for me. And my, my Carol says, when I came back home, he goes, sing that song for daddy. And then later on, I uh, added parts to it, and I made it a song on an album called The Pullman Company, you know, working for The Pullman Company. Yeah. But that's the only collaboration I really did. Did you give her credit? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I give her credit, yeah. That's great. You know, um, but I don't, I don't, you know, people go, I, I've had other artists, I won't say who, asked me to collaborate with them. Mm -hmm. It's like, I thought to myself, does anybody walk up to Bob Dylan and go, I'd like to write a song with you? They did in the early 90s because Bob Dylan uh, didn't write a song for about six years. Yeah. And there there was a period. But Billy Joel hasn't put out an original album since... I know, that's why I feel better. But what, but what I'm saying dreams. is... Yeah. But what I'm saying is, is, if they don't ask Bob Dylan... Yeah. ...for Burke Bacharach, why are they going to ask me? Yeah. See what I mean? If, I'm, if that's what I do, and I have books of lyrics that I haven't even gone through, you know? So, right. But people feel... You see what I'm saying? It's just interesting. It's like Picasso, asking, would you like to paint a painting with me? Right. You know, right. it's kind of it's kind of interesting. You know, I was thinking about you know, a Greg Lamond or or something. You know, can I ride a bike with you? You know, I really I really like to ride a bike with you. Well, they do have tandem racing. On the <laughs> yeah, track. they do have tandem yeah, so racing. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, she can't use that one. No. no. I bust you every time. Man. I, you're great. I love it. You know. Yeah. Thank you so much for. Yeah, hanging out and um, I can't wait to see the show um, at Dazzle and I'm excited to dig deeper in your catalog you know because it's, it's going to take a while but um, um, it's all great stuff I'll give you another hour and I gotta run I gotta fly away leave you to fall that was Otis Taylor and me and um Otis plays at Dazzle in Denver on December 28th. You can get tickets online. Um, I really enjoyed hanging out with Otis, and I, and I really 
uh, enjoyed taking a deep dive into his massive catalog. I mean, it's amazing that he didn't make a record until he was in his 50s, but it's amazing how many albums and how many great songs he's recorded in that time, and I hope he makes a lot more. Um, happy Halloween season to you. Um, I will be playing with Rolling Harvest at the Caribou Room in Nederland on Saturday, October 28th, and it's one of my favorite venues in the in the area. Um, um, it's it's kind of a hidden gem up in Nederland, but I played there on New Year's Eve. Um, this past New Year's Eve with, um, it was Rolling Harvest and Gasoline Lollipops, and that was a really magical uh, family reunion of sorts. And um, Saturday, October 28th is going to be super fun. And you can get tickets at thecariboo.room.com. And um, oh, also Friday, November 10th, I will be interviewing Taylor Sims of Bonnie and Taylor Sims and um, Everybody Loves an Outlaw. You probably know the Icy Red song and Taylor also plays with um, Madeline Hawthorne. But I'm going to be interviewing Taylor Sims at Spirit Hound Distillers in Lyons, Colorado and he's going to perform and then I'll interview him and then he'll perform some more and it's, it's going to be a fun time it's free and spirit hound has the best whiskey moonshine rum vodka everything that they make on site and there's always a food truck there as well so come by uh friday november 10th for my live episode of my live stash with the great taylor sims and i will also See you next Monday right here, as usual.